Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. East Africa is the nothing personal word of the day for Thursday, August 4th, 2022. East Africa is the location where I just spent the last month of my life. I told everyone, including you, before I left that I was heading to Africa, and one of the nothing personal listeners contacted me at David P. Sampson on Twitter and said, just so you know, you don't say you're going to Africa. You have to say where you're going in Africa. And that had never occurred to me. I had never taught that. I had never understood why that was the case. It's the equivalent of saying, yes, I'm going to the United States. Well, are you going to New York? Are you going to LA? Are you going to Iowa? Where exactly are you going? I was lucky enough in 2013 to go to Botswana and go on safari my father had scheduled a family trip for his children and he got so sick and he didn't die until years later, of course, but he got so sick he couldn't go, but he still let the kids go because he wanted us to have the experience with his grandkids. And I got to see animals and experience things that I'd never experienced. And I didn't know whether or not I'd get back to Africa again. Of course, with running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents, one of the continents is Africa. And so again, in 2018, I went to Cape Town, which had been my second time in South Africa. But still, I had not experienced the entirety of the continent of Africa. You don't say I've experienced the US when all you've done is gone to the Statue of Liberty. There is so many things to do in America, so many things to see, so many different cultures, so many different types of people. And I don't mean color or age. I mean people with what they have to say, with their experience, with their lives, the way they run their lives. So when we started Nothing Personal in 2019, the first year, I barely took any time off. I think we dropped 260 shows during the COVID year of 2020 when no one could travel. And I said to myself, with all the death I experienced with my father and sister and best man at my wedding all in the last two years, I said, when we're able to travel, we're going to travel again. And I've talked to you about what it means to be uncomfortable and why I crave that feeling of discomfort, why I want that stomach ache. I want to do things that are out of the ordinary. I want to do things that they don't require money they really don't you can travel through africa for you can live in africa for six months and spend you know nine hundred dollars and get a job and end up making money so it's not just about how lucky i am that can certainly change the way you fly whether you're in seat 84e or 6f of course it can change what lodge you stay in in different places whether it's a hostel or a five-star glamping 
but at the end of the day, you're still using bottled water to brush your teeth, and you're still pumping a toilet to get water to flush. All of that said, I made a commitment that I was going to, while I could, have these types of experiences. I have struggled with the concept of retirement because I don't ever want to retire. I don't understand people who wait to do things, and I don't mean travel, whatever it is you want to do in your life, whatever experience you want to have, whatever place you want to go or thing you want to do or book you want to read, it doesn't matter what the experience is. People wait and they wait and they wait and they procrastinate and then it's too late. And I don't want to be that person. So I decided what I told Coca about eight months ago that I was going to take a month off during the summer and I was going to go to Africa. And my plan always was to go to Uganda because a bucket list item of mine was to go gorilla trekking in the mountains of Uganda. And if you're going to be in Uganda, you might as well go to Tanzania and it's right there on the border around Lake Victoria. You can see Kenya. You can go to Tanzania, go on safari. I've always wanted to go to Zanzibar where Freddie Mercury was born and see what Zanzibar was about. Understand why Billy Joel wrote the song about Zanzibar. Oh my God, the song is not about the country of Zanzibar. That blew my mind because I was on the beach of Zanzibar at the end of the trip listening to the song Zanzibar, looking at the lyrics of the song Zanzibar, thinking I was the coolest person in the world singing Zanzibar while in Zanzibar, and it's about a pub in DC called Zanzibar. My whole life I've heard that song in concert on a record, and I never realized. Anyway, I digress for only a second. Then I remembered failing in Boston this past April when I was trying to finish my 26th marathon and I could not finish. And I always wanted to run a marathon internationally. I've never run one. Went online, Googled what it could be to maybe run a marathon in Africa and came across the craziest website of all time. It's a website started by a man named Ziad. It's called Z Adventures Racing. And this guy does crazy adventure races all around the world. And there was a race that was first on the list of the menu that said the Uhuru Peak Challenge. Didn't know what that meant. So I clicked it and read it. This was a race where you climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, where I happened to be going. Then you run a marathon from the summit of Kilimanjaro, which is over 19,000 feet. On top of that, it had never been done before. So anyone who was able to complete this marathon was going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. To say that I was enthralled would be one of the great understatements in a world full of hyperbole. What are the odds that there's a marathon going on in the place where I plan to be. It can't be that the timing is right. Let's see what time of year they're going to do this. On the website, it said, get to Tanzania on July 8th and you will be done by July 16th. The permit to go gorilla trekking in Uganda, I shite you not, was dated for July 17th and you had to be at the gorilla trekking camp on July 16th. When something like that happens and you turn your back, you are not living your life. When the world aligns in a way where you have no choice but to keep moving forward, when you don't know what's around the corner, when you don't know what awaits for you, when you don't know whether or not you can succeed, you don't know what failure is going to feel like, and you still choose to sit on your rump then you just don't get it. And I'm not critical, I'm not judgmental about people who don't wanna do the things that I wanna do. People, as I've always said, given speeches about this, if you wanna sit on the couch, if you wanna watch TV, if you wanna read books, if you never wanna leave your home, if you never wanna leave your city, your, your state, your country, I get it. There are millions of people out there in the US who do not have passports, who do not travel, and it's not because they don't have the money, believe me. It's because they don't have the desire. They've got the fear. 
when I saw that this trip was happening up Kilimanjaro and all I had to do was extend by a week, I said to Coca, I'm extending the trip by a week. Sorry, I'm going to be gone a full month now, not the original plan for three weeks. Everything's going great. Go to Denver, Colorado to train at altitude, get caught in a snowstorm, can't climb a mountain. Go to Arizona to train at altitude and climb mountains in Flagstaff, wildfires, can't train. Go to Austin, Texas for a family reunion and tear my hamstring water skiing as though I'm still in my 20s, three weeks before I'm set to leave despondent beyond repair. Doctors telling me, do not climb Kilimanjaro. You are going to not just delay healing of your hamstring. There's a chance that you are going to permanently injure your hamstring. It may never get better. This may be your last marathon. I was not swayed. And my orthopedic surgeon knew that I would not be swayed. My cardiologist knew that I would not be swayed. Got on the plane on July 7th and headed to Doha. Connecting in Doha, which by the way, their airport is to die for, sometimes literally. I had been in Doha before when I visited the troops in 2011 with the Florida Marlins and we landed in that airport and then got taken away by security, by, by people in the army with guns and we went to the barracks to visit soldiers. We were not allowed to walk around Doha at all. We were not allowed to do anything without the armed forces with us at all times. It was scary, very scary. So my memory of Doha was, was colored by the fear that I felt and the comfort by being secured by the armed forces. But in the airports, it's a completely different story. Doha's airport is bar none the nicest airport I've been to in the entire world. And I'm lucky enough to have been to many of them. And you land very early in the morning when you fly to Doha, and there was Gucci, Prada, Hermes, all open. There are 100,000 people in the airport. There are prayer rooms. There are smoking rooms. There are, there are displays. There's a McLaren display, an actual McLaren car sitting in the middle of the airport. Mind-boggling. Get on another six-hour flight after the 14-hour flight to Doha. Land in Arusha, Tanzania at the Kilimanjaro Airport. Full of anxiety, knowing that I've got two days before climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Not sure what it will be like. Not sure whether I'm going to get altitude sickness. Not sure whether or not my leg is going to hold up. Unclear about anything. Never having been to Tanzania. Land at the Kilimanjaro Airport. Get into a car to go to the race hotel. 10 seconds into the ride, having left the airport grounds, having gone through security to leave the airport, which you have to do, you have to get out of your car, go through a metal detector on your way out of the airport, on your way into the airport, check your passport, unbelievable security. There are people, as a matter of fact, it reminded me of Israel, the, the army is, is patrolling everywhere with their machine guns, holding their machine guns. That can be difficult to get used to if you haven't done that before. Get in the car, heading to the hotel, and within five minutes of the car ride, I have this little buzz. The buzz I have is the tired buzz when you're off a very long flight, when you're rubbing your eyes, and they reflect that in movies sometimes with the actual action of rubbing your eyes, trying to see if what you're seeing is actual or real. I was doing that, though there were no cameras on me and we weren't filming a movie, because what I saw on the way from the airport to the hotel is unlike anything I'd ever seen in any of my travels, whether it's been to China, whether it's been to South America, wherever it's been, there were thousands of motorcycles, tuk-tuks, which are like uh, three-wheel three -wheel carts, like three-wheel golf carts, Cars, no SUVs, they're all regular cars. Not like Cuba where it's all old cars. It was just all actually Japanese cars that go to Africa after they've been used in Japan or even in China. How do I know this? Because every car I was in for a month had all Japanese or Chinese lettering in it. No English, no Swahili. So you're driving by and it was dark. It was nighttime. And what I'm seeing are different 
stores, it looked like, different places where people were congregating, where they were selling these big yellow jugs, they looked like. The kind of jugs that used to bring, not a Gatorade cooler, but the kind of jugs you used to bring when you were a kid or at camp that had bug juice in them, or the kind of jugs that you would bring to a Little League game before all the fancy coolers and the Yetis and the, all the other stuff that would happen. And I didn't know what they were. And I said to the driver, what are those? And he said, that's for water. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, there's no running water for all these people in their homes. So they have these jugs where they have to walk to a water source, get water, and then carry it back to their home, then use it to either clean or cook laundry, cook, drink, you have to boil it. And I asked how they boil it. They also sell at these stores little tiny propane tanks, and they also have wood. So there are people who just build fires to boil water to then use for everything that water is used for. And I was struck by the effort that it took every single day to do something that to say I take for granted would be one, another bit of understatement. So get to the hotel, check in. The next day, you wake up and you see in the sunlight and I went to walk around right around the hotel, which is in a outside of Arusha, in a, still about two hours from the base of Kilimanjaro. And I was immediately approached by people who looked at me and said, Mzungu. And I had been told this was going to happen. Mzungu means white. The number of white people who I came across in Africa was unbelievably few. We went to different places, not to the five-star hotels. We didn't go. We went to experience Africa locally. And I had never been in that circumstance before. I'd never been in a place where I was being stared at and being called in a way that was not threatening in any way. It was descriptive. People just wanted to look at me. They wanted to touch me. They wanted to talk to me. Everyone asks, where are you from? You say United States of America. They say, New York? And I said, as a matter of fact, yes. The industry in Tanzania is tourism. The industry in Kenya is tourism. The industry in Uganda, gorilla trekking is tourism. The things that are done to cater to tourists is uh, somewhat staggering because that is their greatest export, if you will, and greatest import. It's actually the same thing. Now, people argue they do coffee in places in Kenya and, and Tanzania, and there's bananas and all sorts of other crops and, that, are, that are grown in Tanzania. But at the end of the day, tourism is the economic driver. Tourism benefits very few people in Africa. For the people who do get the benefit of working where there are tourists, of being tour guides, they have appreciably better lives than 99% of the other Africans. Their lives are they work for six weeks in a row every day, then they get two weeks off. They don't live anywhere near where you are staying. When you are talking about gorilla trekking in Uganda, there's, no, there's people who are the guides and the trackers of the gorillas don't live in the village that is right where the impenetrable forest is. The people in the village ha live in squalor the people who are working with the tourists live 12 to 14 hours away in Kampala, Uganda. And when they get time off, they spend two days just to get home, two days to get back and end up having 10 days with their families. And they consider themselves to be the luckiest people you come across in Africa. So I'm walking around Tanzania knowing that I'm starting Kilimanjaro the next day and I can't help but think to myself, am I taking advantage of my life enough? Am I so spoiled and so lucky that I shouldn't be willing to live the life I live, that I should give every penny away more than I do to charity now? Should I try to see what it's like to not have 
running water? Should I try to know what it's like to not care what's going on in Major League Baseball or in the National Basketball Association or certainly in the NFL? It's such a fight you have in your head. Most people just ignore the fight. And that was my defense mechanism for the first, I don't know, 49 years of my life. When you work as a president of Major League Baseball, you have every opportunity to be so spoiled, to have everyone say yes to you, to get everything you want whenever you want it, to have every one of life's advantages, and to assume that that's the way it should be for you because, hey, I won the birth lottery. Hey, I was born on third base. Hey, I was the beneficiary of nepotism. Whatever the reason may be, there are so many times where you could lose yourself, and I did. I was lucky enough to get fired by Jeter and somehow I was able to, with therapy, to start thinking about and working through the way I was and turning into a different person, turning into someone who had the ability to be empathetic and sympathetic, had the ability to feel, to not be robotic, had the ability to actually examine what is going on around me, not in my light, but in their light. When you are... I don't want to say I'm a narcissist, but I guess, I don't know, clinically, maybe I could be. I don't know the answer to that. But when you believe that the world revolves around what you want, what you need, and what you're about to get, and when you don't get it, you know you're only one step away from getting it because you have perfect clarity with exactly the path you want to go on. When you strip that away, and when you allow yourself to not be the center, when you allow yourself to be immersed into a different culture, a different society, you get that stomach ache, but you get a feeling of adventure, a feeling of comfort, a feeling of love that I had never had before. I fell in love with Africa from the minute I stepped onto the continent this trip, and that feeling did not go away for 27 days. One of the things that makes me tick is doing extraordinary things that are actually everybody can do. I've told you about how I feel about that. I, I want to take a break right now. And when we come back, I want to tell you about climbing of Kilimanjaro. I want to talk to you about what it meant to not quit or to quit, what it meant to do the marathon when you didn't know whether or not you'd be able to finish, when you didn't know whether you could take another step or another breath. We'll be right back. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I'm talking about my trip to East Africa that just ended. This show is, uh, you know, we'll get back to sports tomorrow, I promise you that, but so many of you have gotten to me at Twitter at David P. Sampson and asked about what I was thinking during the trip, asked about the experience of the trip. I spent the first part of the show giving you an overview of some of the macro things that were in my head throughout this trip to Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya. But I want to talk specifically about what was going on in my head during the climb of Kilimanjaro. It started on Sunday, July 10th, and it starts with a six-hour hike to the first campsite. We were on the Machami route. You can Google it. And we were with 21 total people, 21 climbers, and 78 crew members. That's the ratio, not just because you pay the most money. That's the ratio when you climb Kilimanjaro. There are porters who I learned are unionized, if you can believe it, 
who carry the tents, the food, your suitcase, everything from camp to camp. You carry a day pack with your water and your snacks. You get to your campsite and your tent is made. There is a mess tent where you eat in a very crowded area in the dark with headlamps on. You're eating on prison dishes or what I suspect would be prison dishes. And you're so hungry at the end of every day, at the beginning of every day, in the middle of every day, that you're willing to eat anything, no matter what. No pork, but anything else. There's soup, there's bread, there's just, you, you love it. It's goulash, and you just eat. The first day of Mount Kilimanjaro, you have in front of you five days where they tell you what the plan is each day. The first day, it's going to be 11K which is about, call it seven miles. It's gonna take about seven hours, one mile an hour. I can do way faster than that, I thought. They said, no, wait till the next day when we do 5K and it takes six hours. I said, that's impossible in my head as I was preparing for this, I'm gonna be able to go faster. Each day the hike was about 5K to 10K and took between four and eight hours. I was not at all prepared for what was going to happen to my body. The first thing that happens to your body is you go into complete intestinal shutdown because the only thing that's there are chemical toilets where you have to pump them in order to flush in a tiny tent where your knees are at your chin and I'm only 5'5 five five, and your, your tush is practically on the ground. It seems impossible to believe how fortunate we were to have chemical toilets and that's what we were told and I would not let myself go to the bathroom. I spent the first three days, didn't use the bathroom one time for number two. The lead guide said to me, because they were taking our pulse oximeter, our heart rate and our blood oxygen rate every single night on the trip on Kilimanjaro, because they needed to figure out who was getting altitude sickness, who they were gonna to allow to continue up the mountain and who they weren't. They asked about your bathroom situation, raised my hand, said, haven't gone. They said, you have to go to the bathroom or you can't continue. And so I did. I found a way, I opened up, I let myself, I let myself be uncomfortable. You know, I hadn't been in a tent since 2013. When you go to Survivor pregame, when you land in the Philippines or now you land in Fiji, they wanna get you ready to sleeping outdoors under the stars on bamboo. So they put you in a tent, even though you're at a resort, which ends up being Ponderosa once you're voted out of the game, you don't get to stay in the rooms of the resort. You stay in the front of the house literally on the ground in a tiny tent with your bag. It's so uncomfortable. I hated it. I didn't sleep at all. On Kilimanjaro, you're in the same tent. You're having a hard time breathing. And I didn't sleep. Three of the nights on Kilimanjaro, I did not get one minute of sleep. You're in your sleeping bag. You're freezing cold. You have to go to the bathroom of the night because you're taking Diamox to not get altitude sickness and that makes you go pee. But to go pee, you have to get out of your sleeping bag, leave the tent, unzip it. And throughout the night, you hear people unzipping their tents, going to the bathroom, getting back in their sleeping bags. When the sun sh rises at 6 a.m., you're back, you are starting to eat breakfast and then go on the hike for the day. Climbing Kilimanjaro means you go up thousands of feet a day and then down to camp, you go up, down, up, down. It's called acclimatizing. Out of 21 people, only 20 people made it to the top. One person made it right to the emergency room with fluid on his lungs. They did not allow him to continue. Two of the 21 people had to be dragged to the top by summit guides. Way harder than I ever dreamt. And this was pre-marathon. The other marathons I've done the week before the marathon, you're eating pasta every night, you're resting, you're going to movies the day before the marathon, you're putting your legs up, you're being completely smart with your body. Seven marathons in seven days on seven continents taught me that you don't have to eat pasta before a marathon, you don't even have to rest the day before a marathon, you can actually run a marathon the day before a marathon. So I knew that my body, with if it were healthy, would be capable of climbing Kilimanjaro and then running this marathon but there were variables that I wasn't prepared for. The variable of altitude is not a joke. Do you know that when we got to 13,000 feet coca, I could not do math? The last night before we summited, the camp was at 16,000 feet. You have this weird headache. 
You can't walk more than three steps without stopping because you're out of breath. Everything that should take five minutes takes 20 minutes. The act of figuring out what you're wearing the next day, organizing your clothes, packing your day pack. They would do checks of everyone's day pack in the mornings because people were so out of it and there's no oxygen, decreased oxygen, that you forget stuff that normally you would never forget. So there's a checklist they go through. Very fascinating to me where I think that I've got everything organized and ready to go. <laughs> I got one for you, Coca. I had laid out my clothes that I was gonna run the marathon in and I had done it at 16,000 feet the night before the marathon and I had laid everything out and I put it in one part of my bag because I knew that after we climbed to the summit where you have to wear a winter coat where you're freezing your kishkas off and you get to 19,000 feet from 16,000 feet, then you run back down to 16,000 feet in your winter stuff. Then you can jettison your winter stuff and put on your regular marathon clothes. You can take your hiking boots off and put on your trail shoes. So I have everything lined up, ready to go and calculated that it would be a five minute stop during the course of the marathon. The stop to change my clothes took 44 minutes, not five minutes. And it's not because I was standing around. It's not because I was doing any chit chatting. It's not because I was using the restroom. It's because I could not get undressed from the winter clothes and redressed in the marathon clothes it, things weren't working. When you don't have enough oxygen, your body adjusts in a way that I learned from people on the trip. And the way your body adjusts is that the oxygen goes to the places where it is needed most. Your body does a calculation. It's as though you're in a car and you're running out of fuel. And somehow the car decides where the fuel should go you don't need your turn signals, but you need your brakes. Now, don't talk to me about cars and brake fluid. I don't know what cars are made of. I'm just giving you the example, so stick with me. You gotta have brakes, you gotta have gas, you gotta have steering. You don't need radio. You don't need windshield wipers. You don't need headlights, even in the dark. And so imagine your body is like that car, deciding where the oxygen, which is not readily available at 16 to 19,000 feet, where the oxygen needs to go. It goes to the brain, but not to operate everything. It's like having a generator that doesn't operate everything when you have no power. You don't open your fridge because there's not enough generator power to run your fridge. So there's no way that you have enough oxygen to do math the way I like to do math in my head. There's no way your organizing skills are getting fed with the oxygen that you have. Your muscles are not getting the oxygen they need. It is only your brain getting the oxygen it needs to keep your heart beating, to keep your blood flowing. I've never experienced anything like that. Total body shutdown. The night of the summit, our campsite sounded like a sick ward. It was the beginning of, what is it called, coca pul pul pulmonary edema? Everybody was coughing. And it was a, not a smoker's cough, it's a dry cough because you don't have enough oxygen. And so every tent is full of <coughs> That is the chorus that you hear. The guides would check on you. They put our finger in the pulse oximeter. They ask you a few questions. And then at 1228 AM, you start your climb to the summit. That's right, it's the middle of the night. You had done a six hour climb on Thursday morning, July 15th. On Thursday night at midnight, which is Friday morning at 1228, so Friday the 15th, we started climbing to the summit. The hike to the summit is done with a headlamp. It is 3,000 feet directly up. It switchbacks, but it is incredibly steep. The hardest day of climbing of all of the six days of Kilimanjaro. You don't know whether you're gonna make it because you see people coming down from the summit on previous days with oxygen. You see them on stretchers. You see them being carried by guides. 
There are escape stretchers with wheels throughout Kilimanjaro. There's a helipad for a helicopter to come take people off. There are people who have died climbing Kilimanjaro, not as much as Everest, but plenty. You don't know whether you are ever gonna get to the summit. And the summit is the start line for the marathon. And if you wanna run a marathon from the summit, you have to get to the summit. If you wanna get into the Guinness Book of World Records for participating in the world's highest trail race, then you've gotta get to the summit. 20 minutes into the six and a half hour climb to the summit, I couldn't take another step. I had to take a break. The four people I was with had to take a break too because you climb in groups with guides in front, with guides in back, they're monitoring you. And I was ready to quit. My hamstring hurt, my legs hurt, I was exhausted, I had a headache, I was dizzy, I was worried. And I realized that in front of me I had to get to the summit and then still do 26.2 miles. I did not see a path to success. There was enough oxygen in my brain at about 1.30 in the morning to remind me that there's no way I am going to fail. There's no way I was gonna come back to nothing personal, to my family, to my friends, to all of you and tell you that I gave up. I did that in Boston when I couldn't do the marathon and there was no way with all the effort that it took to get to where I was on Kilimanjaro, there was no way I was not gonna get to the summit and then see what would happen after that. I stood up and took another five steps, stopped again. And it was that sort of stopping and starting that went on until 6.58 a.m. the next morning when we reached 19,381 feet, over 5,000 meters. It's called Uhuru Peak. You can see it for the first time when you're about an hour and a half away from it. You know you're gonna get there. You're watching people come off the summit who had summited before you. You're seeing some of them not able to walk. You're seeing some of them not able to breathe. You're seeing what the tragedy could be, but you go forward. And the reason you go forward is that you put the trust in your guides, you put the trust in your body, you put the trust in your preparation, and you have the mental fortitude that failure is not gonna be an option. That is a state of mind that doesn't just happen. You have to practice that. I've spoken on mailbags, I've spoken on other episodes about what it is when your body says stop or what it is when your mind says stop and how important it is to have those two things not happen at the same time. I've told you about some of the other athletic endeavors that I've tried and done, whether it's the Ironman or Triple Seven, where you make sure that neither your body nor your mind will quit at the same time. Well, folks, on Kilimanjaro, I had circumstances where both my body and my mind did quit at the same time. And I had to draw into a reserve that I didn't know I had. I've spoken to athletes so often about this and I do not consider myself an athlete, but I've spoken about both with athletes and with sports psychologists about the reserve of mental strength. What you do when your body has nothing left to give and your mind has nothing left to give. Where do you find that will? That's what separates people who do from people who talk. And I've always been the talker. I want to be the doer. And I've spent my life saying I'm going to do, I'm not going to talk. I took five more steps, rested another 20 steps. I got to the summit. When you get to the summit, you take a picture, you get congratulated, and then there is a race starter who looks at you and says, now go run the marathon. You are so exhausted from having three straight nights of no sleep. The last night, which is started at midnight, they serve you breakfast at 11.30 p.m. You then start the trek at 12.28 a.m. as I told you. You're then told at 6.58 a.m. when you summit that by 7.11 you will be running your marathon. Most people who climb Kilimanjaro, you get to the summit, you stay for a few minutes, then you take two days to get down the mountain. To get down the mountain is 13.1 miles. I started going down the mountain about 
three miles in, you get to the camp where you spent the night before, you change clothes, and then you go the next 10 miles down the mountain, you go back through all the ecosystems that are Kilimanjaro. You start in sort of a desert moonlight condition at the summit where you're climbing through sand that is 10 inches thick. You do sand skiing down the mountain for about a quarter of a mile, which is quite difficult, and you end up being on your tush the majority of the time. Then you go through slip rock and stones, you go on paths, you go through muddy rainforests. It took six hours and 72 minutes to get down the mountain. Seven hours and 12 minutes from the peak down to the base of Kilimanjaro, and that was only the first half marathon. There still was another half marathon to go. Out of 21 people in our group, of the 20 who made it to the summit, the number of people who stopped when they got to the bottom after the half marathon and said, Gnug, I quit, I'm done, I've done enough. There were only 11 of us who kept going. That's it. 11 of us hurting, exhausted, able to breathe better because you're down at 6,000 feet kept going for the second 13 miles. The second 13 miles was a looped course where you do three loops of four and a half miles each. Yes, the marathon was 27.9 miles by my watch. It was down 3,000 feet to get to the turnaround and up 3,000 feet to get back to the base of Kilimanjaro. You ran down to the turnaround. You had to get your picture taken then you walk back because you cannot run at that incline. It is impossible. Your body is exhausted. You have no fuel. You have nothing left in your tank. You have nothing left to give. And you've got nine miles left to go. And I started counting. I started testing my math skills as they came back when the oxygen improved as we got to lower altitudes. I was calculating the number of New York City blocks I had left to go. I was figuring out what the calorie depletion was in my body, what I needed to eat and drink in order to try to get through what was becoming an 18-hour race. When I had four miles left to go, I knew for the first time, it was mile 23.9, and I knew that my watch, because I had done the math, having done the loops, that my watch had to get to 27.9. When I got to 23.9, I knew that I was going to finish the marathon. I stopped and I took a beat. And the beat that I took was the recognition that I'd set a goal for myself and I was going to achieve the goal no matter what it took. It took about an hour and a half to do the next four miles, maybe more, maybe two hours. And I got to the finish line at 7.18 p.m. It took 11 hours and 52 minutes to do the marathon. So I got there at, at 7.04 p.m., excuse me, because I started at 7.11 a.m. So I was able to finish the marathon. I finished in sixth place. I was the sixth and final man to finish. The woman I was with finished first. She was the only woman to finish the marathon of the seven women who were in our group attempting to do the marathon. This is a Guinness Book of World Record feat. Go Google in the Guinness Book of World Records. Go to the website for the world's highest trail race. I am going to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, a book that I had read learning who Robert Earl Hughes is, Robert Wadlow, you heard about him, the tallest man in the world, the McCreary brothers, the fattest twins in the world, the people with the longest nails in the world. I am now part of the Guinness Book of World Records just for participating in this Guinness race, which included a vertical 1,000, which is the 3,000 feet that you do to summit, and then running 42K, 42-point. 2K down the mountain. When I crossed the finish line, I had a sense of accomplishment that I had not felt with any of the other races I'd ever done. I had this feeling that I had done it. And I couldn't sleep that night because the next morning at 3.30 a.m., 
We were off to Kenya to tour Kenya. We were off to Uganda to go gorilla trekking. We were off to Tanzania to go on a safari. We were off to Zanzibar to learn about the culture. It was a life-changing trip, folks. I think life-changing has to be when you learn something not just about yourself, but about the world that you didn't know before. People throw around life-changing all the time. Oh, that was a life-changing movie. That was a life-changing book, a life-changing moment, life-changing experience. I'm pretty sure that what life-changing means to me, and we all have our own definition, it has to be learning something about yourself that you did not know no matter what your age is and learning something about this world that we all live in. It's the same moon that we look up to, whether in New York or California or Indonesia or Africa. It's the same sun. It always rises in the east and sets in the west. The same stars in the sky. North is north. The dichotomy of the way people live in this world, the squalor, the poverty, the largesse, the gluttony, the rich, the poor, everything in between. It's a lot like a jungle where the lions are in charge. They get to eat what they kill and then the vultures and hyenas wait. They wait their turn. People in the jungle, animals in the jungle, not people, understand where they are, why they're where they are, what they have to be afraid of, what they have to do to protect themselves. Are people that different? One of the things that we have that the other animals do not have, at least as far as we know, is the desire to be who we're not. The desire to have more than we have. The feeling of guilt when you have more than you need. The feeling of frustration when you don't get what you want when you want it. Is that evolution? Is that progress? I thought about all of these things as I was going through Africa for that month. You know what else I thought of? I thought of how many people have heard of Derek Jeter. Forget David Sampson. Derek Jeter, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, Wayne Gretzky. I spent a month asking those same questions to people. Do you know that? I asked everyone I could about what I did for a living in sports and business. What have you heard of? Nadal. What about Djokovic? Nope. Zero. Do you know how many people have heard of Shohei Otani, who I asked, or Mike Trout? Zero. Do you know how many people have heard of Tom Brady? Zero. Tiger Woods? One person had heard of Tiger Woods. He was a driver who drove us from the airport in Zanzibar to the beach of Zanzibar. He had heard of Tiger Woods, but didn't know what sport he played. They knew Ronaldo. They knew Messi. They knew Michael Jordan. And they knew LeBron James. It's a unanimous study that I completed, having asked hundreds of people. LeBron James and Michael Jordan transcend borders and socioeconomic circumstances. Tom Brady does not. Nobody in baseball does. Where do you go when you get home from a trip like that? What do you do? When I landed on whatever day it was, Coca, Tuesday night of the trade deadline, I had made a commitment to myself that I was not going to lose those feelings that I had in Africa. I was not going to lose the feeling of empathy, the feeling of, of personal growth, the life changes that happened. I was out of JFK airport for two minutes when I was able to get enough service and I was immediately on my phone again, immediately looking at Twitter, seeing who was going to be traded, getting ready to do the live trade deadline show the first night back. Thinking how cool I was. I can go on a one-month trip to Africa, and I can get home off a 30-hour flight, and I can start work immediately. I thought I was the cat's meow. It was actually pathetic. 
I missed all of you so much. I wanted to come back. I wanted to do more shows. I wanted to let you know what was going on in Major League Baseball. But you know what? It was my own ego just as much feeling as though you missed me and wanted to hear my voice and needed to hear my voice. It took me all of 10 minutes getting off a plane from Africa to start falling into the same old dull routine. And I put an end to it yesterday. On Wednesday, the day after I got back, I put an end to it. I put an end to being buried in my phone. I put an end into not interacting with people. I put an end to thinking that I'm better than someone else just because of the color of my skin or where I live or what I do for a living or how many Twitter followers I have. I put an end to having the dopamine of the text alert or of the number of likes or follows. That was my definition of life-changing. No more. Too much tragedy. Too much pain. It's too fake. It's too meaningless. I'm still going to do shows every day because I love it. And I'm lucky to do it. I'm lucky to be at CBS. I'm lucky to have a platform that Coke and I have built from zero. I'm lucky to have subjects to talk about. I'm interested in them. You're interested in them. But it is not the only thing that defines me or you. You listening to podcasts, you doing the things that you do or watching on YouTube, you are not defined simply by the content. You are not defined by your job. You're not defined by your family. You are defined by your own inside brain and the voice in your head that tells you what you're capable of and what you're not, that tells you what's important and what isn't. And make no mistake, when you go on tilt, because you've lost your way, you've lost your sense of right and wrong, you've lost your moral compass, you've lost your moral center, you can find every single one of those things again. And you don't need to go to Africa to do it. I appreciate all of you. I appreciate you being here for this show. I've closed almost every show with a saying, it's just business. It's nothing personal. That is the world of sports and business. There's no question about that. Isn't it interesting to note that maybe some of the best things in life are completely personal? This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.